As we mentioned before, there has been a whole lot of togetherness in the Miller household these past weeks, just like I know has been the case for a lot of you as well. And for the most part, that's a really great thing. And I'm sure something that I will look back on with a whole lot of nostalgia in those not-too-distant teenage years when I am not being asked by my two boys several times an hour to play. There will come a day, I'm sure, when I will wish that I could be with them to play the exact same imagination game that we've played over and over and over again. We're trying to keep that perspective, being grateful for all the really good things about this really strange season as we deal with the inevitable friction of being all together all the time. But sometimes things move from minor friction to something more serious. And I'm going to be vague here so as not to throw one or the other of our kids under the bus because they both do this sort of thing from time to time, as do I, if I'm being honest. I wonder where they get it from. Those times when they move from being unintentionally annoying to their brother, or even intentionally annoying, as is often the case, when they move from those basically fine expressions of siblingdom to seeing an opportunity to hurt, to hurt feelings through sharp words or criticism, to power up and get their own way at the expense of the other, or rarely, thankfully, in our house, to cause actual physical pain to their brother just because they can. And the line for when as a parent I should intervene isn't always crystal clear, but there is a line where it is my job to step in and put a stop to it, to bring some consequences sometimes, because we don't treat one another like that in this family, or I can't just sit by and let your brother suffer what you're bringing at him right now. Kids don't always understand why, Those sorts of boundaries matter. And so as parents, part of our job is to help develop that understanding in them and protect those around them while they learn. The goal, of course, being that they will develop into the type of people who on their own decide to treat other people well. I want to enter into our passage from Jeremiah today, from chapter 5, with this in mind. That in this sense, God is very much like a good parent. This is Jeremiah 5, starting in verse 1, and again, I'm using the translation of John Golden Gay. God says, Explore Jerusalem's streets. Go look and get to know them. Seek in its squares. If you can find anyone, if there is someone doing justice, seeking truthfulness, and I'll pardon it. Even when they say, as Yahweh lives, they swear in falsehood. Yahweh, do your eyes not look for truthfulness? You struck them, but they didn't feel sick. When you consumed them, they refused to accept constraints. They made their faces harder than rock. They refused to turn. I myself said, those are only the poor who act foolishly because they don't acknowledge the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. I'll go to the important people and speak to them because those people surely acknowledge the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. Yet those people had altogether broken the yoke, torn off the straps. Therefore, the lion from the forest has struck them. The wolf from the steppes destroys them. The leopard is lying by their towns. Anyone who goes out from them will be torn to pieces because their rebellions are many. Their turnings are multiple. For what reason should I pardon you? Your children have abandoned me and sworn by no gods. I filled them and they committed adultery. They troop off to the whorehouse. They were horses in heat, lusty. They were bellowing each for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not deal with these things? 
Yahweh's words? Or myself not bring redress against a nation that's like this one? Go up among its vine rows and destroy them, but don't make an end. Remove its branches because those people don't belong to Yahweh. Because Israel's household and Judah's household have totally broken faith with me. Yahweh's words. I think sometimes we read passages like this one in Jeremiah with some discomfort. These are the types of passages that cause some people to question whether there is a nice, loving, Jesus-y New Testament God and a mean, vindictive, wrath-filled Old Testament God. But at least part of that discomfort, I think, comes from reading this as if the disobedience that's being mentioned is arbitrary. As if these words were the words of a capricious parent or a spoiled, petulant prince demanding to get their way or else. Do as you're told because I said so and I'm in charge and if you don't, you'll be sorry. There have been more than a few churches, incidentally, that are led that way, with the pastor imitating a capricious, do-as-you're-told sort of God. But I digress. And so it's crucial that we pay attention here to the fact that God is not reacting arbitrarily. God is not angry because I didn't get my way and now someone's going to pay for it. And incidentally, God isn't reacting out of annoyance or exasperation like, well, (laughs) some parents sometimes do in their weaker moments. And if this weren't a podcast, you would see me pointing at myself. It's interesting that the nations around Israel at the time, they mostly had their own versions of the flood stories, like the story of Noah in Genesis. And often the reason for the flood in those other stories was not, as it is in the Bible, because violence and injustice had permeated the whole of creation. It was because the gods were like, ugh, these humans are so loud and annoying and I just want to get rid of them. The flood is like a divine temper tantrum for the surrounding nations. Our God isn't like that, is one of the messages of Genesis. The results of the disobedience that Jeremiah is talking about here and the results of the idolatry that God condemns are oppression and injustice. Shall I not deal with these things, God says, not because God didn't get God's way, because people are getting hurt. And there's only so long God can allow that to go on. And sometimes it's not immediately obvious that that's what's in view in some of these passages. So like verse 2.23 says, How can you say, I've not become defiled, I've not followed the bales? Look at your journey into the ravine. Acknowledge what you've done there. At first glance, this looks like simple idolatry. You followed other gods into the ravine. But many scholars see the ravine, or the valley in this verse, as a reference to a particular valley, the valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, where child sacrifice was practiced as part of rituals worshiping gods like Moloch and Tanit, and which Jesus later refers to as a place of consuming fire. Point being, in Jeremiah, the people have not become defiled, simply because they have disobeyed God on some minor point of the law, they've become defiled because as part of their idolatry, they were literally killing the vulnerable. And, Jeremiah would say, not just literally, but figuratively as well. Going back to verse 1 of chapter 5, God says, Go, look through the whole city. I mean, really look hard. See if you can find one person doing justice. Golden Gay makes the point that the word justice here has a broad 
meaning, one that includes something like exercising authority. In other words, justice means using the power and privilege that you have to make good, right, just decisions on behalf of the vulnerable. And the implication in this passage is that there is no one to be found who is doing that in Jerusalem. In fact, this is an echo of the story in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God is going to destroy these cities because of the depth of their inhospitality and injustice, shown in the story by how they wanted to rape vulnerable travelers. And Abraham bargains with God. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? And God says, okay, I won't destroy it if there's 50. And Abraham keeps bargaining down from there. What if there's 40 or 30 or 20? And ultimately, God says, if there are 10 righteous people, then I won't do it. And in Jeremiah, it's not 10, it's one. Jeremiah is saying, you, Jerusalem, are 10 times worse in your injustice than the place that has become a proverb for the most unjust place imaginable. And then Jeremiah goes and starts to look through the city. And this is interesting. He betrays himself as complicit in the systemic injustice of his people. It says he sees the poor and how they don't know God's justice and says to himself, well, that's because they're fools. After all, that's why they're poor in the first place. They probably just don't work hard and make foolish decisions. I'll go to the powerful. They will do justice. But that's not what Jeremiah finds either. And it's an interesting question, whether this is showing us a shift in Jeremiah's own understanding, like he actually expected the poor to be fools because they are poor, or if he's being kind of tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic here, but doesn't actually think the elite will be more righteous than the poor. It's kind of an open question. In any event, later in the chapter, we find the true reason these people are poor. In verse 23, it says, But this people has a mutinous, rebellious mind. They've mutinied and gone. They haven't said to themselves, We must be in awe of Yahweh our God, who gives the rain, the early and later rain at its time, who keeps for us the weeks set for harvest. It's your wayward acts that have diverted these things, your offenses that have withheld good things from you. So what are these wayward acts and offenses? It goes on to say, Because faithless people were found among my people, like someone who watches in a bird catcher's hideout, they have set up a means of destruction, so they may capture people, like a basket full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Thereby they have grown great and rich. They become fat, become sleek. Further, they've passed over evil words. In decision-making, they haven't given decisions for the orphan so that the orphan might be successful and they haven't done justice on behalf of the needy. Shall I not deal with these things? Yahweh's words. Shall I not myself bring redress against a nation that's like this one? The poor are not poor because of their own fault, Jeremiah sees. They're poor because the powerful have been enriching themselves at the expense of the vulnerable. Later on in the book, we will find out that, among other things, they have been ignoring the law that says they need to release slaves every seven years, just as one concrete example of that. This is the disobedience that God is reacting to. And God says once again, shall I not deal with these things? There's only so much of this God can take before God needs to do something about it, like a good parent 
watching out for their children. The idolatry is bad enough, but God is just as much reacting to the inevitable result of idolatry, which is injustice and oppression. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, said it this way, When God gets cheapened through idolatry, our neighbor becomes inexpensive. When God gets cheapened, our neighbor becomes inexpensive. This is more than just moral, then and now. It's political, too. Because, as these verses say, God can't just sit back and let a society like this one go on indefinitely. At some point, God needs to deal with these things. Consequences will come. Why? Because God wants to destroy and punish and get back at the oppressors? Well, maybe there's some of that in there. But it seems like, in Jeremiah and elsewhere, the primary purpose to God's judgment is to make turning back repentance possible. At several points in Jeremiah, God seems shocked that the people have ignored the warnings sent their way. I gave you the law through Moses that set out the parameters for how a just society might be built, at least just in the context of the ancient world. I sent you prophets when you strayed and you didn't listen. I even allowed the northern tribes of Israel to be conquered and taken off into exile, and somehow you still didn't get the message. And now it's been hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression and injustice, of exploiting the vulnerable for the benefit of the powerful. I can't let this go on forever. And not just because of the pain of the oppressed. God can't let it go on because the whole point of Israel The whole reason God's people exist then and now is so that they might serve as a source of blessing for the nations, that they might offer an alternative to the oppression and injustice of the world, showing them what a life of love and mercy and justice might look like. When God's people fall into idolatry, it inevitably results in injustice, which doesn't just hurt individual people. It stops the world from being formed into what God intended it to be. And the longer it goes on, the further the world strays. And so God needs to get things back on track. Strip the branches off the vine rows, God says in verse 10, but don't make an end. There's a remnant of people who might be different. Once the unjust structures of the current society have been destroyed by Babylon, maybe their eyes will actually start to see to see how far they've strayed from the justice of God. Once the powerful have had their whole world turned upside down, maybe their ears will actually start to hear. To hear from exile the voice of God calling through the writings of Jeremiah, maybe they will turn, repent, and come back to the God of justice. In John 15, Jesus also picks up on this image of God's people being like vines. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And my father is the vine dresser. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and he prunes every branch bearing fruit so that it may bear more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Even as the branch is not able to bear fruit on its own unless it abides on the vine, so neither are you able unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them, these will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, that one is cast out 
even as a branch is cast out. It withers, and they gather them and throw them into the fires to burn them. Our invitation today is the same as the one Jeremiah sent to the people in exile in Babylon. When it comes to looking for life and provision and prosperity, don't trust the idols of your day. Whether Baal and Molech then, or economic security and image management today, those idols that give no more life than a dead branch does, and inevitably lead to the rotten fruit of injustice, as we start to see our fellow humans as means to secure a better life for ourselves. Instead, put your trust in God, that God will in fact give you all you need, and out of that security and intimate loving connection, bear the fruit of justice in the world around you. With what power you have, make decisions for the poor and vulnerable, helping them to be successful, as Jeremiah says. I love that way of putting it because it makes it something more than an abstract legal sense of justice. God's people are supposed to be about the work of helping the vulnerable to be successful, helping them to have life. And that's true of us as individuals and in our individual lives. But it's also true about us helping to build a society that reflects God's commitment to justice for all people, that helps all people be successful, to have life. Amen.